I think the biggest mistake that I see first-time PMs make is that they spend way too much time trying to prove value. You want to be accepted by your team. So you spend all of this time doing pretty low leverage tasks like cleaning out bugs or project managing. And those things are important. But if you get stuck doing those low leverage tasks all the time, that's a big mistake because success is actually building a great product, not just making your team happy or executing on what you've been given. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Hey everyone, welcome to In-Depth. You might have noticed that my voice sounds a little bit different from your usual host. My name is Todd Jackson, and I'm also a partner here at First Round. Brett has graciously allowed me to guest host a few episodes this season. The episodes I'll host will be mostly focused on product, given my background. Before joining First Round, I held a bunch of different product roles, from VP of Product and Design at Dropbox and Director of Product Management at Twitter, to being a PM at Facebook and Google, leading Newsfeed and Gmail. I was also a founder myself. My startup cover was backed by First Round in 2013 and later acquired by Twitter. So I'm thrilled to now be able to bring on some incredible leaders as guests, many of whom I've known for years and, and worked with previously, and dive really, really deep into product building. Today's episode is a great example of that. I'm thrilled to be joined by Joanna Zhang, VP of Product at Webflow. She goes by Jay-Z, so I'll refer to her that way throughout the conversation. Before joining Webflow in 2020, Jay-Z was the Senior Director of Product Management at WeWork. She also spent four years as a product lead at Airbnb, building multiple teams from scratch and launching everything from Airbnb Plus to a new host app. Prior to that, she was a PM at Dropbox and Pocket Gems, a mobile gaming company. In addition to working at multiple household name companies, Jay-Z also teaches product management at Stanford, and she mentors a lot of rising product leaders, so I thought she'd be the perfect person to talk to about building a career in product. To frame our entire conversation, we started with why she doesn't think of it as a career ladder, but rather as three distinct phases, contributing as a PM, managing PMs, and then leading the PM function. Jay-Z starts with the PM role. She shares advice on breaking into the function, what you should look for when you're a candidate interviewing for PM roles, and the mistakes that are easy to make early on. I thought it was especially interesting when she compared and contrasted the PM role at all the different companies that she's been at. Next, we get into the managing phase, including how to think more strategically as you get more senior, and her advice for first-time managers. I loved what she shared about the importance of being an emotional dampener for your team. Finally, we wrap up with the executive phase. Jay-Z talks about thinking of your org as a product, and she shares super tactical pointers for working with your CEO, your peers on the exec team, and even the board. I hope you enjoy this episode. I think there's tons in here, whether you're trying to break into product, grow in your career, or you're a founder looking for hiring advice. And now onto my conversation with Jay-Z. Jay-Z, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Todd. 
There's so many product topics that you and I could chat about, but I think what stands out to me most is how you've crafted your career in product. You've worked at these amazing companies making your way from first time PM to now VP of product. And so I'd love to dig into that more today and specifically your framework here. And you've said this to me before, you think of it less as a career ladder and more about three distinct phases of the career journey. Why is that? And why is this an area that product folks and founders should spend more time thinking about? Yeah. So I really think that the career ladder can be so different from company to company, which is why I really like to think about it as three different phases where you're directly contributing as a PM. And then when you're managing PMs and your impact is actually through your team. And then finally, where you're leading the entire function. And each of those phases are really quite different. How to navigate them, how to be successful in them is quite different. And as the company grows, to your point around, you know, why is it important for founders to even think about this? You need people to do the different types of work across these three dimensions. And it's really important as your company scales. So before we dive into your thoughts on each of these phases, I was curious, are there any commonly held beliefs or advice on product careers that you disagree with? Maybe I'll start first with this one commonly held belief, which is that you have to be technical in order to be an effective PM. And I think that is in conversation a lot, especially with people who are thinking about moving into product. I think it's a lot less about being technical in order to be effective. For example, I myself did not have a CS degree. I had an econ degree. But it's really more about asking the right questions and using those questions to guide your team. Another really commonly held belief is that the best way to get started is actually through a structured APM program. And I do think they're great. And if you can get into one, take the opportunity. But what's even better in my mind is the combination of a really committed manager. And a lot of times with APM programs, you actually don't know who your manager is. And even more importantly than that is having more work to be done at that company that you're at, at the stage that they're at, than you have people to do it. And then I guess the last commonly held belief that I would challenge is some thinking around this idea of finding role models. I think it's really about finding advocates. And then if you are looking to model your behavior off of someone, I'd really recommend finding someone who's just a little bit ahead of you and understand what have they mastered recently to be successful, as opposed to finding a person that you might want to be in five years or 10 years. I love those. Okay. Awesome. So maybe we start Jay-Z by kind of framing the product manager job. What do PMs do and what does the day-to-day look like? The PM role really is different from industry to industry and even company to company and sometimes team to team. And so what I will probably do is break it up into the following pieces. The first one is a big part of your job is just understanding what to build. And you do that by understanding your users' problems and also really defining what business success looks like in the context of your particular company. Then it's about working with a team to build a solution and like the actual product itself. And as part of that, you're working with a lot of partners, marketing, sales, support, to effectively get whatever it is you've built to market. There are so many great products that are great products, but without that go-to-market motion are not successful. And then finally, it's closing that loop. Almost no product is the perfect right product the first time around or in V1. And so you really have to iterate. You have to learn from user feedback, the data you see, and then use all those things to improve your product. And so I guess your question around the day-to-day, a lot of that is really just doing a lot of communication. You're communicating with your users. You're understanding them. You're communicating your team. You're making it really clear to them what success looks like and what you've learned. 
And then you're communicating with those partners and your stakeholders. And so given that set of responsibilities, who is a good fit for being a PM? Or or I guess conversely, why should you not become a PM? Yeah, great question. In terms of a good fit, I just mentioned a lot around this concept of you're spending a lot of your day collaborating and communicating. So I think to be a good PM, you have to really enjoy that. And that doesn't mean you're an extrovert or you're talking all the time. I actually think that written communication is equally important, if not even more important. But you have to enjoy the process of communicating and all the details that come with that. Another thing that I think you have to be really good at is actually sweating the details. So having that deep care for your users and the ultimate product experience, if you don't sweat the details, it's so easy for low quality products to slip through. And then I also think you need to be intensely curious. You have to be really curious about what do your users actually want? What is the right solution for them? And you have to be not afraid to take initiative. A lot of times a thing won't happen unless you put it in motion somehow. So the combination of having that really deep curiosity and that proactiveness to go do something about it is really critical. To your point about like, what are things that you should not maybe think about or care about if you really want to be a PM? I think there are several actually. I think the first big one is if you want to be a PM because you want to make all the decisions or dictate what the team should build, it's not going to really work out. I think there's that common saying out there, which I actually find very problematic, which is as a PM, you're a mini CEO. Instead, yes, you have all the accountability, but you have very limited, in fact, oftentimes no direct authority because nobody on the team, the engineers, the designers, nobody reports to you. And so in many ways, you're an editor. You're taking all these inputs and figuring out what to do with them as opposed to let's say like barking out orders and expecting your team to snap to them. So that concept of like, if you want to be a PM because you're like, I'm going to make the decisions, it's probably not going to be the case. Totally. And the mini CEO thing, I think has always kind of rubbed me the wrong way as well. And I love the sweat the details thing, you know, Dropbox core value. So we connected on that. Jay-Z, what is You want to tell us your personal backstory? What is the backstory on how you initially became a PM? Yeah. So I started my career and I actually worked in consulting. That was the natural path. It was either banking or consulting coming out of school with an econ major. And after working consulting for a little bit, I realized that I really craved actually building something. So I spent a lot of my time doing research, putting a deck together, making a recommendation to a client, and then walking away and just hoping that they'd implement the recommendation. And I really wanted to actually be on the other side of the table where I was building and operating and working with teams directly. And so at the time, I actually really didn't even know that product management was a role. I was looking around to see what would allow me to do that. And it was actually a little bit disheartening at the time because I learned that to be a product manager for a lot of companies, you know, let's say the Googles out there, you had to have that computer science degree in order to even be considered for an interview. And so what I ended up doing, my journey to becoming a PM was I actually found a startup. It was called Pocket Gems. It was a time where gaming was really taking off. It was during Zynga's heyday. And so I found a company that was in that space and they really valued PMs that brought a strong analytics background. And that's what I had, working in consulting with my econ major. And also I wanted to be one somewhere small, which is why I went to like a Pocket Gems instead of like a Zynga. And I wanted specifically to be working on building on mobile because I really felt at the time that was the future. And at the time, honestly, I think Facebook didn't even really have a mobile app. And so that strong conviction in where 
the world is going and also wanting to be in a place where I would be learning all the time and have a lot of responsibility because the company was so small. That's what drove me to Pocket Gems and to get my first PM role there. That's awesome. So I guess maybe on the advice side, it could be for somebody who wants to switch into PM from a different industry or someone who's a new grad. When you're early in your career and you're looking to join a company as a PM, what should you be on the lookout for? And are there any specific questions that you recommend asking maybe during the interview process? Yeah, I think that when you're early in your career, it's all about how much you're going to learn. So I would really ask the questions and walk away feeling like this place is where I'm going to learn the most. This group of people that I'm going to be working with and I'm going to be surrounded by, they're going to help me and push me the most. And also it's the network that you establish in your earlier career that really builds over time. And it's just compounding. I think there are a lot of questions you can ask in order to gauge whether or not you're going to learn and that rate of learning. So things like asking your manager, how do you define success for me over the next six months, over the next year? What are the biggest challenges that I will be facing? How do you see me growing? Or what are the most important skills for me to be successful both here, but more broadly in my career as a PM? Those types of questions will help you understand if your future manager is going to be invested in your growth and also whether or not the challenges that you're going to meet are actually things that will push you to grow as opposed to potentially challenges that you have no control over that can actually be very disheartening. What are good answers to those questions? Like if you were to ask a prospective manager, hey, what are the biggest challenges I'm going to face? How do you see me growing? What are good answers to these questions that you want to hear? Yeah. Well, first of all, getting answers to those questions is really important. There are times when for a first-time PM, their future manager could very likely be a first-time manager. That's not a deal breaker at all. But even having someone who's been thoughtful about providing those answers for you, that's not a given. But specifically, I think going back to this challenges question, if the challenges that they're articulating are things where they're like, hey, this is a challenge, but this is how you can learn from it and overcome it, that's great versus like, hey, a challenge that we're going to be facing is something that is pretty large, pretty strategic at the company level. Then you're going to be in a situation, again, going back to this concept of like not having the control to then learn and iterate on what's ahead of you. Got it. Let's switch gears a little bit. I know that you actually teach a class in product management at Stanford. I'm curious, what's the first lesson? What do you teach in your class? Yeah. So the first class covers the product lifecycle, which is important because that's essentially what you're doing as a first time PM, really getting features through that entire lifecycle. But specifically, we go deep on this one concept, which is separating the problem space from the solution space. So what is that? A lot of times people jump straight to solutioning. They're like, wouldn't it be great if we built X or like, wouldn't it be great if users had Y? And that's a huge mistake. You've skip the most important part of your job, which is actually understanding the problem and the opportunity. So the problem for your users and the opportunity for your business. And so the first lesson is really even helping students identify that that's a thing that happens and that most likely 90% of the time they've jumped ahead. And so pulling them back into the problem space and helping them understand how to navigate that, that's critical. And related to that, you mentioned that as a challenge that a lot of PMs face. What are the other big challenges as an early career PM? And maybe what are some of the most important lessons that you learned in your first few years? I think the biggest mistake that I see first-time PMs make is that they spend 
way too much time trying to prove value. It's almost like you want to be accepted by your team. So you spend all of this time doing pretty low leverage tasks, like cleaning up bugs or project managing or chasing down a very specific thing. And again, those things are important. I have this concept of you're both looking at the big picture and then you're also going down to the details and you need to be responsible for them. But if you get stuck doing those low leverage tasks all the time, that's a big mistake because your job success is actually building a great product, not just making your team happy or executing on what you've been given. And what's an underrated quality, do you think, of great PMs or a skill that you don't see PMs spending enough time on in their early careers? I would say it's saying no. So it's very hard to say no. I think generally as a human trait, it's difficult to say no, but it's so important for the PM to do that. And it's not always intuitive. You're like, well, why is it so important to say no? The reason is because how much you are usually asked to do is always greater than what you're able to do. And so being able to say, no, not that, that is the essence of good prioritization. Another thing that I don't see PM spend enough time on is actually working on their communication skills. So I mentioned earlier that so much of your job is just communicating. And so spending the time learning to be really concise, concise emails, concise slacks, presentations, and also thinking about how do you tailor your message to an audience because you're going to be speaking to all these different types of people, whether it's users or your direct team or to leadership, tailoring your communication and your messaging is critical. Are there any tactics that you found particularly useful when you were early in your career, either in terms of building features, working with engineers, communicating internally, et cetera? Like what are some of these tactics? I'm actually going to share something that isn't specifically about what you asked me, Todd, in terms of building features or working with engineers, I'm going to share a thing that I thought was really useful for me that is also very tactical. That's almost like a meta point, which is the piece of advice I would give is actually become really exceptional, become known for something at the company. And what that means is, again, you don't have to be good at everything, like shoot for exceptional at that one thing pretty good at call it like one or two other things. And then at least average, like get to table stakes level with your other skills. But the reason why it's so important to be exceptional, that one thing is then people will come to you, your teams, leadership will come to you with more opportunities because they know that you really are great at a particular thing. And that's how you get more responsibility. That's how you have more impact. And so tactically, I'll give you maybe some examples from my career. When I joined Pocket Gems, the thing that I really strove to be known for was to be operationally excellent, but not just operationally excellent, someone who could drive business outcomes. And so what I worked really hard on was owning the biggest live game and generating the most amount of money out of that game because I knew I wasn't the most technical, not even close. I literally was like, I don't understand a lot of these things. And again, it was great because I was learning so much. I also wasn't the person who was best at fun gameplay design. Like, before Pocket Gems, I, if you asked me about <laughs> certain games, I would be like, I have no idea what those things are. And so because I knew that I couldn't shine in those areas, I could just get to, again, table stakes understanding. I worked really hard to become exceptional at operational excellence and that business like leadership and driving business outcomes. And so then when I went to Dropbox, I had a similar mindset of like, how do I become known for something where I could be given more and more opportunity? And what I found that I could become really great at 
was that I could become the person that was known to be able to get the most complex launches over the finish line and do it with the leanest team. And the way I thought about it was I didn't want to be known for the exact same thing as known for pocket gems because from a learning perspective, I wanted to be in a slightly different scenario and situation. But that being said, I was also thinking about my core strengths. Like because I was so great at execution, I can translate some of those skills into working through these complex technical launches and working with very lean teams and inspiring those teams. I actually think even to this day, people at Dropbox have this nickname for me as the honey badger, which again, I'm not sure how flattering that is (laughs) given some of the YouTube videos out there. Oh, I think it's flattering. (laughs) Honey badgers are known for like relentlessness and ferocity. Yes, but hopefully also empathy, which is what I think is also important as a PM. But even just like having that as, oh, this is what Jay-Z is good for. Put her on anything and she'll relentlessly drive through it. I think it would just really help give me more opportunities and therefore more learning experiences. Awesome. And then so Airbnb, WeWork, was it same thing, different things? Different things. And I think it's related to this concept of like, I wanted to push myself. I want to be known for other things because as part of that, I would be learning, growing in very different ways. So Airbnb, I actually became the person who was really known for team building. And that was, again, very different than previous experiences where I was more of an IC and an individual contributor. And then also, this was a new challenge for me personally, but I actually became known as someone who was a deep systems thinker. I I worked on a lot of platform work and could see how things across business lines could tie together and we could do really interesting platform investments to bring that to life. And that for me was a, a very different challenge than execution, which was a little bit more what I leaned into when I was a direct PM at Pocket Gems and at Dropbox. And so, yeah, I became known as the platforms person, which is was surprising to me, but was something that pushed me to grow in a lot of ways. And then we work, I became the person who could really translate between all the business teams and the rest of the company with the actual infra team. And so it leaned on some of what I'd picked up at Airbnb, this concept of being that translator, that systems thinker. But I pushed myself to go a lot deeper. I actually worked on infrastructure for the very first time. And the reason I did that was because I seen so many PMs that had only done feature work or only infrastructure and they were speaking different languages. And I knew that ultimately if I wanted to be a really great all around product leader, I wanted to have worked on both sides so I can actually see the points that the two sides were making and bridge that gap. I think this is an incredible piece of advice about being known for something at a given company. It strikes me that the four examples that you gave, Jay-Z, are are pretty different, right? Pocket Gems running live games better than anyone else. Dropbox, most complex launches. Airbnb, building teams and thinking about platform. And then we work with infrastructure. What's the advice that you'd give there? Because these are very different things. They're all good. But in what ways are they related? Or how did it come from a core part of you that made it possible to be good at all these different things? I'll speak first to the motivation, which goes back to a lot of what I was talking about earlier, which is this desire for learning. And that's honestly what I think people earlier in their career should just optimize for. So the reason that these things feel different was because at every company, I wanted to push myself in a different way and become excellent in a different way. But at the end of the day, I do think there are some similarities. I think if you if you pick a thing that is just so out of your comfort zone, the chances that you're going to be exceptional at that thing is pretty low. And so I think you see some threads In here, one thread being being able to get things done. That's what really drove a lot of the earlier reputations, I would say. And then I took that and I was able to say, okay, well, that's not enough. And I think especially when you become a manager and a leader, we'll talk about this more. It's not enough to just be operationally 
excellent. It's really about that strategic thinking, that critical thinking and being able to motivate teams. And so because I knew that was so important in being a great product leader, I pushed myself to learn those things and get good at those things. Got it. So these are household name companies, Dropbox, Airbnb, WeWork, Webflow. Is the PM role the same at all of these companies or is it very different? Yeah. I mean, the PM role is always different. There are times where even the title PM is different company by company. You know, at Microsoft, they call them program managers and sometimes they even call them product owners or even producers. I also think how product decisions actually get made really differs by company in terms of how involved founders are or what stakeholders need to weigh in. The feature development process is also really, really different company by company. Are there product reviews, design reviews? What are the phases? And then it can even differ by team. The exact role and responsibility of the PM versus the EM or the designer, that can differ. Okay, so let's flip it around now to the founder point of view, because there's a lot of founders who listen to this podcast. For early stage founders out there, what are the signals that you need to hire your first PM? I think by the time that you actually have an engineering team, call it seven to 10 engineers, and you're no longer spending your own time essentially being the PM, I think that's true for many, many founders at the beginning, it is time to start thinking about that first PM hire. And who are you looking for? You definitely want to find someone who's cut their teeth somewhere, who's excited to be that first PM and the impact that comes with that. It means that they have enough experience that they can do a good job and they may even be able to start building out a team, but it's not someone who comes in expecting that they have a team under them or the way they get impact is through others. Your first PM needs to be able to execute and get in the weeds very, very quickly. And so what's the advice to founders? What's the best place to look? How do I identify these PMs who might be my first PM? Yeah, I think it's finding those people who have seen hypergrowth and One other tip is find someone who might not have the opportunity they have, whether it's management or in kind of the scope that they want at an existing company. And so they're kind of motivated and craving to do more, but they've been at a place where, again, they've seen some of the things that your company's likely going to see over the next couple of years. The hyper growth thing is interesting to me because I think sometimes it's not possible to find PMs who have seen hypergrowth at a prior company. Or sometimes maybe I think you want to take a bet on a PM who hasn't necessarily done it before. Is that controversial to you or do you agree with that in some ways? I think a lot of times you can take a bet on an internal candidate. And the reason it's worth doing that for an internal candidate is because usually they have context that's very, very helpful. So for example, there's someone who sits on your sales team, on your support team, or maybe on your data team, and they just see so much of that user feedback or that data that would enable them to make great product decisions. So I would say I personally would not hire someone who's never done it before and take a bet on an external person, but I would potentially take a bet on your first time PM on an internal candidate. I love that. And I've seen a lot of examples of that where you take someone who's in a non-PM role, but they know the customer really well, they know your company really well, and they turn out to make great PMs. Yes, absolutely. Let's transition now and move up the stack a little bit from the individual contributor PM to the manager phase when you're managing a team of PMs. So what changes when you start managing and then eventually when you start managing managers? Yeah, the biggest thing is that your impact is now through your team and not what you do yourself. So you have a lot less control, but you actually have a lot more influence. 
I think someone who actually enjoys having that impact through others, enjoys coaching, enjoys helping people make good prioritization decisions, helping people execute, all of these things make someone more fit to be a great manager. Why you should not opt for the leadership track if you really like having that direct impact. So again, not through others, but yourself making those decisions, having that control, that's not a great reason to move to management. In fact, we have, call it principal or staff PM roles for you there. Another big thing, if you find yourself unable to be what I call an emotional dampener for the team, meaning like, hey, I know my team is really upset. I know people are frustrated, but I'm going to coach them and help them and kind of like dampen the emotions as opposed to rile them up. That's a really important skill set of being a good manager. And so if that's not something that is easy for you, I think you should think twice about being a manager. I think there's a saying of like a good manager is often a punching bag and a therapist in addition to having to do all these other things around setting strategy. And so I do think knowing that and going in eyes wide open is really important. As someone who has reported to emotional dampeners in the past, I love that criteria. And I think it really does make for a, a very warm and supportive manager. So I've definitely benefited from that in my career. It completely changes your ability to feel like you have autonomy and work. So it's huge. So what advice would you share with a first time manager? Is there anything you think is important to pay attention to as a people manager that is unique to product or to managing product managers? Definitely as a first time manager, the biggest thing to think about is what got you to where you are is most likely not going to get you to the next point which is a lot of times what got you to where you are is that strong execution, that ability to get in firsthand and debug something, untangle something. And that's not what you're doing anymore. You are coaching, you are supporting, you're helping your team and your influence is through your reports. Specifically to managing product managers, a big part of your role is actually setting strategy, like taking the vision and strategy at the overall company level, translating it down to your particular area. And then you're also managing a portfolio. How do you balance all the levers, all the investments, all the work within your area of influence? So let's focus on strategy and maybe we can demystify strategy a little bit because I think a lot of people think of it as this big concept that's hard to understand. How do you think about strategy and how do you think about moving from being an execution-oriented PM to a more strategic thinker. Yeah, absolutely. I know so many people who really do get overwhelmed by this word strategy. It feels really daunting. You're like, what is strategy? But it's actually quite simple. Strategy is what are the things you're going to do to get to where you need to go? And so part of that is first defining where you want to go. And that really is defining success, defining your goals, and then working backwards and saying, okay, these are my levers to get there. What is each lever? How much do I want to invest in each? And what is the sequencing behind the things I want to do? So when you talk about levers to achieve success, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I use this term and actually I teach about this in my class because I think a lot of people, when they think about a roadmap, they will literally list out all the features. I've seen so many people just create like an Excel spreadsheet and you're like, these are the features and I've riced them all, meaning, you know, I've like estimated the impact and the cost and I've compared everything. That is not how I believe we should be thinking about strategy or your roadmap, again, which is a reflection almost of your strategy. Instead, I stress a lot around like telling human stories. So you're able to say this bucket of work. And there's a theme around that bucket of work. Someone could say it in 30 seconds, like this is what we're doing for our users. 
it's really important to get to that level of storytelling communication. And that's what I mean by lever. So what are you doing? A, B, C, these three things we're going to do, these three buckets, these three levers. When we do them, we will accomplish our goal. And then that way, everyone at the company, whether it's your own team or leadership team, they will understand what your strategy actually is versus I'm going to do these 50 features in this order. And then people can have debate around that. They can say, hey, I don't know if this makes sense because we learned this new thing. Or is the sequencing of that bucket and then this other bucket, does that make sense? Or can really do these in parallel or should they be flipped? And so that's what I really mean by levers. And I think this whole concept of strategy is at the end of the day, you're telling a story. And that story is based on what you know. You've learned from your users and your data. And then you're saying, this is the path we're going to take to get to where we want to go. What were the most important lessons that you learned in your own career and your own journey from individual contributor to manager? Are there any mistakes that you made or failure modes that you see? My biggest learning is actually spending much more time on this concept of defining success. At the end of the day, you're not here to come up with the right answer. You're not here to figure out the how. You are here to empower an entire team or several teams. And so in order to do that effectively, define success for them in a way that they fully understand it and they feel empowered to go come up with their own solutions. People just get into the weeds and they start pair program solving with their teams. And it might be fast the first time around, but that's actually not how your team learns and is able to problem solve on their own and come up with their own innovative ideas, which at the end of the day will always eclipse yours because the number of people, the number of ideas, how close they are to the actual details will be greater than you as a manager. Another thing related to this concept of defining success is actually drawing the box a little bit more concretely. And what I mean by that is a lot of times, either on the spectrum of like, hey, go do X, which we should never be doing. We should be like, this is the problem you should be solving for or the outcome we should be achieving. Or it's on the whole other side of the spectrum where it's like, go figure this big ambitious thing out. And it's so big and ambitious. It doesn't match the skill set of the PM that is actually working on the project. If you say something like, let's go figure out the next evolution of Dropbox to a senior PM, they're going to be like, wow, that is a big, big ask. You know, how do you draw the box a little bit smaller for them? So you're able to say, hey, specifically, we want people to be collaborating more with Dropbox. How do you think about that specific problem? So I do think people can err on the side of one or the other being way too specific or being way too vague. And that's a balance that I've really worked through and grown from throughout my career. So this idea of drawing the box, I think it's a great metaphor. How do you draw the right box? How have you learned to do this and to make the box appropriate for the level that the person that you're talking to is at? I think that there are two pieces to this. The first one is understanding the company strategy very, very deeply. I think sometimes managers can just get into the act of quote unquote managing and they start doing the thing, they start coaching without really being like, wait, wait, do I understand how my team, my area really ladders up to the overall whole? Where are the open questions in the company strategy that I don't understand? Because if I don't understand those holes, I can't then make it clear to my team and then create leverage for everyone beneath me. And so I think the the first piece of drawing the box is like, do you have a really clear understanding of the company strategy, of the opportunities, of your user base, so that you can help draw, quote unquote, a box for your team to really work in? And then on the other side, it's really understanding your team and your report. 
What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? How do they approach strategic thinking? Are they good at goal setting themselves? And knowing their strengths and weaknesses will help you draw the box in a way that is the right size and the right focus area for your particular report. And so I imagine that when you're working with a PM who's a bit more junior, you draw the box in a kind of narrow fashion. If you're working with a PM who's more senior, you draw a wider box, a more expansive box. For those senior folks, do you give them these wide open thought exercises and then just sort of let them run? Or when you draw the box really wide for a senior person, how do you then manage it? Yeah. So the way I think about it is if you are working with, call it a first time PM, you're drawing the box both narrowly and with a thick marker, (laughs) meaning you're like, okay, this is the future that we're trying to do. This is the goal that we're trying to achieve. And you tell them both of those things. Then as they get more senior, you no longer have to tell them this is exactly what you have to build. Instead, you can be like, I don't know what we're going to build per se, but this is the outcome that we need to achieve. And then they can actually go in and start drawing their own boxes or like filling in the box in terms of what exactly we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And as a person gets more senior, you know, to your question, Sometimes their job is to draw the box with you, where it's like, actually, what problem should we solve for the company at this point in time? A very, very senior PM, and especially a PM leader, manager of a particular area, it's part of their job to help draw that box. So when you are looking for PMs to bring onto your team, what are you looking for in candidates? I've heard you talk a little bit about different PM archetypes, and I'm wondering if you could go through those here. Yeah, overall, you know, when I look to Brown PMs, I really look at their communication skills, their ability to think critically and from first principles. But yes, I definitely do have some archetypes because the type of PM you hire on a team with very specific work looks different and the skills that accompany that do look a little bit different. So I think a lot about the first archetype being a growth PM. These are the PMs that are on a growth team. There's a lot of high velocity experimentation. Those PMs are very metrics driven. They like optimizing and working very, very quickly and getting learnings very quickly. The next archetype I think about is this concept of a core product PM. And this really is the biggest bucket of PMs. These are PMs that work on existing features or net new features. They sweat the details of the user experience. They really, really understand user problems. They go into the data and they're able to really improve a feature set or a product area. The next archetype is what I call more of a platform PM. And this doesn't apply to every single company, but I do see a lot more companies thinking about how do I actually build a platform that gives me the ability to move faster in the future, high upfront investment to build the platform, but this platform will then enable us to scale faster, to do something that is a repetitive thing over and over again, much easier. And so that kind of person is someone where really is important that they are a strong systems thinker and that they can both understand the business need, but then understand the system that is needed to support the business. So this one's a very difficult person to find because a systems thinker, in addition to a business-driven mind, is not necessarily easy to come across in one person. The next one is more of an infra PM. And again, by company, there are times where These are less PMs and more TPMs or technical product managers or technical program managers. So depending on how strategic infrastructure is for your company and for your team, do you sell some of it as a product itself? Is it going to give you an unfair advantage? That changes whether or not you have an actual PM on it or not. And then finally, this last one, I think you could take some of the other PMs and have them do this type of work. But I think in general, like 
they're motivated by different things. This concept of like a zero to 1 p.m. They're really into prototyping. They love the early phases. And by the time it gets to one and it's like scaling from one to 100, they're just less interested. Those PMs have a very specific skill set and also a thing that motivates them that make them unique at that stage. So five different archetypes you gave there. I imagine that the interview questions that you asked them are going to be pretty different across the five types. What are some of your favorite interview questions? Yeah, I do think there are some standard questions that I actually think apply to all the roles. But yes, of course, if you're kind of dig deeper on a specific area, you're going to want to test for that specific skill set. But the common ones that I do ask is just really understanding their product sense. So, you know, what are your favorite products? But more importantly, like, why are they your favorite products? And seeing if people actually spend the time thinking about the things they use day to day. I'm a big fan of an analytics question. At the end of the day, every PM is going to have to be analytical and think critically. And so I typically ask a CEO dashboard question, which is like, what would you actually pull together that you should be looking at from a metrics perspective for a given feature or a given product? And then finally, in addition to the product sense question, the analyst question, it's really important to do a lot of behavioral questions because at the end of the day, so much of the PM role is how do you interact with people? And so understanding how they will work with engineering, design, all their partners, asking those questions where the hard situations they've been in, the failures that they've had, how they've responded, how they rise to challenges, those behavioral questions are also really important. And what makes a great answer to that CEO dashboard question? What are you looking for? for a top answer? I want the ability to synthesize in addition to the ability to go deep. So I think a bad answer is you have a list of metrics and all of them feel like they're created equally. Being able to say these are the most important metrics and then if you want to double click into them, okay, these are the secondary metrics that you'd look at. That's a really big part of having a good answer here. Okay. So now you've found some of these PMs, you've made some great hires. Now it comes to how to best support them and how to retain them and how to help them have great careers at your company. What are some of the tactics that you found work well there? Yeah, at the end of the day, people really crave clarity and they want to know that they're making an impact. And so specific tactics include helping people understand how they're doing, doing a actual monthly development chat with them where they know that they're going to spend the time with you really reflecting on their growth plan. When it comes to seeing the impact they're having, one of the most demoralizing things is actually for a PM to feel like the product didn't go anywhere. So being able to tie what they're working on with broader goals and ultimately company level goals and company trajectory, that's also really important. And then lastly, it's not just about having a clear career ladder. Those are important things and some of the stuff I mentioned, but ultimately people want to be at a company that's really growing. And again, growing doesn't have to be year over year, annual revenue growth. It has to feel like the company is doing innovative things, moving in a direction that is going to support users and change the world. And so being able to just really understand your report's conviction in the company and what motivates them and then tying that back to what the company is actually doing, that's a big part of supporting the team and improving retention. And so managers might be thinking about career ladders, but sometimes folks on their team are thinking about whether to stay at the company or switch and join a new company. When do you think it's time to stay put versus time to switch jobs and look elsewhere? Overall, if you find yourself too comfortable, I do think that's a good time to at least think about, am I growing? Am I learning? And is this the best environment for me to be in? That being said, I do think a lot of times people will run away from something and that doesn't usually work out. Instead, I really encourage people to 
be like, I am running towards something. I am really, really excited about this new opportunity, what I'll learn there, as opposed to running away from your current situation. If you are feeling like, ah, I'm just really frustrated with my current job, a thing that I'd encourage you to think about is, are you actually hitting a roadblock that is truly frustrating or is actually how you're learning? Because the times when we're learning the most are those times where we're not comfortable and we are feeling like there's some degree of failure. Okay, and let's flip it around for the founders again. As a founder, what are the signals that you need to add more product leadership? And how do you think about promoting internally versus potentially layering here? That's actually a really great question. I think that there are a lot of internal folks that make amazing PMs. As we talked about earlier, they have their relationships, they have the context. But at some point, we really need guidance from someone who's just seen the story before, who have a lot more reps and can up-level them. And so that's when it's important to really start thinking about adding more product leadership. And then in terms of promoting internally, I do think it's unusual to have someone get promoted all the way from being you know, the first PM of the company all the way to head of product, given what I just mentioned before, that kind of skills and experience gap. But it's really not unusual to go from being the first PM to being a really effective group PM or, or manager of PMs. I think a lot of the people who are early, again, have that context and that knowledge to be able to really teach other PMs, new PMs, new external hires, how to be successful at a given company. Is this something you see founders struggle with about deciding whether to promote someone from within to be their product leader versus externally? I do see a lot of founders sit with their first PM for too long, thinking that that person will scale for a lot longer than they're actually scaling. Okay, so let's continue to move up the stack here from the manager phase to the executive phase. So now talking about VP of product, chief product officer, what changes at the VP level? At the VP level, honestly, the puck stops with you. And so you are responsible for the entire team, ultimately the decisions that get made. And one of the big things that changes is you start viewing the product team as an incredibly critical product in itself. So given that, building the product team really, really should give you energy. And that's a big part of what you do at the VP level. Do you have a thought on what kind of product managers make it all the way to VP versus the ones who don't make it all the way there? And what is the difference? A lot of it does come down to what gives you energy. And so if you get a lot of energy from recruiting, which is a huge part of your job as a head of product, or org design, another big part of your job, if those things give you energy, the chances of you being exceptional to them is higher because you're going to spend a lot of time practicing it. I think another big thing is you have to get really comfortable making hard, potentially unpopular decisions. A lot of your job is potentially saying no to a founder or being able to hold your own on exec team. And so that ability to hold your ground and have a strong perspective is really, really critical to being a good VP. I want to go into both of those actually one at a time. So on the first one, this idea of team as a product, how do you put that into practice? Yeah, your org is essentially your strategy and practice. And so I think a lot about how do you future-proof your org? How do you 
think about where your strategy is going and make sure that's designed into the way your organization is laid out. I also think a lot about creating processes that scale. When you think about your team as a product, you have to think about the processes that they need in order to be successful. So the same way that you would think about building a product where you're thinking about the users and their pain points, you should think about your team and the problems they're facing so that you have clarity on what you're solving for. And ultimately, you can create processes that really enable people to do their best work. And then what tactics have you found effective for working closely with your CEO? or your peers on the exec team, or even the board? Let's go ahead and start with CEO. I mean, honestly, every CEO is so different, but I'll share a little bit of my experience. For me, partnering with Vlad, who's the CEO of Webflow, you know, he's very product-minded, originally an engineer, went to art school. And so my job partnering with him is to really pull him out of being in solutions mode. And it's something he can just default to naturally, given his background. I think in general, zooming out, the partnership between a head of product and a CEO is really about complementing them. How do they think and how do you bring out the best in them? In addition to what is the overall vision, how do you translate that into a clear strategy? And then how do you actually get a whole group of people executing on that strategy at scale? I ran into that at Dropbox too. It reminds me a lot of my working relationship with Drew, also an engineer by background, really good engineer. And the idea of helping pull him out of solutioning, working together on the why, what is the big strategy, what are the major choices we have to make, and then into what we have to build, that was always a big thing for me as well. So that resonates. Absolutely. I think it's very common because a lot of founders, they are used to making the call on what to build from the beginning because that's how they got to initial product market fit, but it's not what's going to get them to the next step of their company. Right. And so what about the rest of the exec team? Working with the exec team is a huge part of the job. When it comes to tactics, a couple things that come to mind for me. The first one is just really making sure there's clarity across the team on who is making what decision. Who takes the lead from whom on what? I'll give you a very specific example on how we've created these relationships on our exec team. So for example, when I partner with Arquay, who's my head of engineering, we know the relationship is one where she takes the lead from me when it comes to why and what we're trying to accomplish. But I do take the lead from her on how, because the engineering team at the end of the day is going to have the most input on, are we going to be able to meet our deadlines? How do we do this in a way that is scalable? And so knowing who takes the lead from the other person on what things is really, really important to decision-making and effective decision-making on exec team. Part of that, and I think a lot of exec teams do not do this well, a lot of teams don't do this well, is knowing when to disagree and commit and actually what commitment looks like day to day in terms of supporting that decision that the team has made and making sure it's as successful as possible. That totally resonates. It seems the idea of disagree and commit is easy to say, but hard to do. How do you guys make that work at Webflow? Even calling out when we've hit a moment of, okay, We've all disagreed, but now we're committing. I think a lot of times that moment of commitment is not clearly articulated. And that's a big pitfall for a lot of teams. People are like, well, we're talking about it and we're sort of aligned. (laughs) Um, So being very explicit on the differences, like even articulating and documenting, these are the differences in opinion, but then saying, okay, we've crossed the threshold where we have committed. And so those differences actually need to go on the back burner and everyone for the function they represent needs to show up 
fully supporting this decision. Because one of the things that can be most toxic to a company is when the leadership team can't actually align and agree on a direction. Okay. And how about the board? Because I think this is something that a lot of early career PMs don't do, don't think about, and even managers of PMs don't often do. But as the VP of product, you are visible to the board. How do you think about that? What is the role and and how do you succeed at that? Yeah, I do think it depends on your stage and the relationship that you have with your board. And so here at Webflow, it really is a partnership. And so, you know, to everyone who is on the board, who's an investor, we've made it really clear that we're here to build an infinite company, which means that we'll actually pick long-term solutions over short-term ones. And so given that context, we have just a very candid relationship with our board. We view them as sounding boards, people who can help. I often give them homework, whether it is recruiting homework or product strategy deep dives. But I think that can be pretty unique to our company. At the end of the day, what I'd recommend is just understand that relationship and make sure that how you are interacting with the board is consistent with how your CEO and how your peers on the exec team are engaging with the board. I do think it's really important to have a unified front. Sometimes it's hard to find that line of having that unified front, but yet also leveraging the board to help give advice on hard decisions where there might be disagreement. And so when you reflect back now, Jay-Z, your journey to VP of product, what were the most important lessons you learned? And even as an experienced product leader, things that might've surprised you when you became VP? I think the biggest lesson I've learned, it's not that different from the manager lesson, which is what exactly is your job? Your job is not to figure out what to build. Your job is instead to figure out what the world needs to look like, what the business should look like and what success should look like, and then let your teams feel empowered to figure out exactly how to get there. So when it comes to hiring, how does your hiring advice change when recruiting very senior product leaders? You should be looking for candidates who can really bring that strategic thinking and the ability to grow, mentor, and scale a team. Those are the two big things that you need to look for. In terms of how I go about hiring, I actually change my hiring process quite a bit. We talked a little bit about the questions I ask for a PM, but for a leader who is quite senior and owning a whole area, including potentially even a VP, I think it's really important to do something like a 30, 90, 180 day plan. It gives the ability for the candidate to really showcase like what would they do? What kind of initiative would they take? And I also do send them a lot of materials. Just here's a bunch of decks. You parse them at your own time. You decide what's important. I think even just seeing what people pick out and seeing how they reach out and ask questions with you as part of the process is a huge part of knowing if that person's going to be successful. And then let's flip it around again for the founders. What are the common mistakes that you see founders make when they hire their first product executive? So I see a couple of things. The first one is not hiring at the right level that you need for the scale of your company. It's really important in my mind to hire for two years out, essentially a person who has seen the scale that you will be in two years so that When they join, they're not quickly over their skis and not sure how to operate. At the same time, you can't hire too much further than that. If you hire someone who's way too senior or way more experienced than you actually need, that person is not going to feel utilized. They're going to get bored or they will ask for things that is actually not the best thing for your company or something your company is ready for. And then the last mistake I see is even just the traits that founders look for. I see a lot of times people doing one of two things. Either they will look for a founder who's essentially 
going to execute their vision. So, you know, this, this feeling of like, build my vision and just make it come true. Either someone looking for someone who's really, really strong in execution and not recognizing the importance of strategic thinking or founders who are looking for someone who's dazzling them with their strategic thinking. Finding someone who is a visionary product leader and thinking that that's what you need when there are times where that actually really makes it harder. When the founder's vision and that product leader's vision clash, how do you work through the differences? How are you going to find the best solution for your users and the market that you have? And so finding that balance of not someone who's just going to execute and also not someone who's just going to pontificate on vision and potentially have a vision that doesn't quite map to yours, finding that balance is really, really important. To wrap it up, what is the best piece of career advice you've ever received? It's to ask for help. And what is potentially unintuitive is that that is increasingly important the more senior you get. People might say, hey, you're more senior, therefore you have to have all the answers or you should have the answers as opposed to constantly asking for help. But the more senior you get, the bigger challenges that you're going to be facing and the answers are very rarely going to be obvious. And so the best way to accelerate, again, we talked a lot about learning and optimizing for learning. If you ask for help, you are increasing your rate of learning and just getting those reps in. And that's the best way to accelerate your career. And so I think about that every day, especially now. How do I ask for help as much as I can from Vlad, from my team, from mentors, from the board? Asking for help is really the best way to get as much input as possible so that you can make the best decision. Well, that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Jay-Z, for spending all this time with us. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. This was so fun. 